0: Listeners, thank you so much for your support here at the Huntsville Cryptcast. As some of you know, over the last couple of years, we've been doing Scared for Your Life Horror Film Festival. Uh, we are once again open for submissions. You can check that out for all of your horror short films at filmfreeway.com slash scaredforyourlife. That's scared for your L-I-I-F-E, as we are a branch of the Long Island International Film Expo. Uh, we are currently accepting submissions under 30 minutes. So if you or a horror filmmaker that you love is on in the middle of something great have them send their submission our way. You can use the code HVCC2021 to submit your film for a 13% discount. So we look forward to watching your submissions.
1: Bloody wonderful, unlike anything you've seen before on one side. But then the other side it's like like Stranger Things made out with Event Horizon. And it's like okay, so is it unlike anything you've seen before or is it like these two things you've seen before? <laughs>
0: Welcome back to the Hauntsville Crypt Cast. I'm Anthony. I'm Doza. I'm Anna. And today we're joined by our very special guest, Steve Kostanski.
2: Hi, guys.
1: Thanks for having me on the podcast.
0: I'm sure that everybody's heard Steve's name being thrown around the horror community a lot lately with all the attention that's being drawn to his new film, Psycho Goreman. Uh, so today, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for taking the time to sit and talk to us about PG and some of the other amazing films in your roster no problem man i know that we each had kind of like a strange journey into your filmography (laughs) i think the first film that we each saw of yours was the void and throughout the podcast since watching that, i think we've name dropped the void countless times Uh, we've accidentally double recommended it a bunch of (laughs) times we've Um, actually
2: mentioned it every episode since watching the void is that true? Oh, we, yeah, we, we've we slipped it in somewhere in one of our episodes, uh, every single episode we've recorded since watching it. I went back and listened to just see how many times we'd recommended it or mentioned it, and we, we were kind of obsessive over the void. <laughs>
1: funny that people are so into it now because when it first came out i remember the premiere me and jeremy the the guy that i wrote and directed it with we were kind of let down with the response it felt like it was a, a bit lukewarm especially in the u.s like at fantastic fest we were expecting this big premiere and we thought it would go over great and it seemed like people were expecting like more of a midnight movie and less of a like dark horror movie and so uh yeah initially i felt like the response was a little lukewarm but then the more we toured it, like we went and did like a UK tour, we went to Spain, it seemed like overseas people were more into it. And then gradually over the years, it's like really built an audience. And now every time I talk to anybody in that genre community, they always bring it up. So, <laughs> really happy that it's like found its place because it's a very weird movie. We definitely like we're very passionate about the material and want to make something that was like very s- specific. And maybe it doesn't cater to everybody's taste. But we thought, you know, like nobody's tried to make a dark, gritty creature feature in a while. Like actually tried to make a serious horror movie that had monsters in it. So, yeah, I think we just weren't expecting the kind of response that we got initially. So it's nice that it's kind of found its place in the community.
0: That's really what drew us in. We're all suckers for good practical effects. And I think that's really what started our rabbit hole into your filmography is just the sheer character and concepts that we saw throughout the void is like i think we compared it to the thing was the last thing that we've seen that was really similar to that where we got a really good creature a really good suspense build and a really good dark story to kind of bring it all home
1: i find a lot of movies are chasing more of like an evil dead kind of vibe or it seems like a bit of a post like sean of the dead thing where it's like people like lean into kind of humor and comedy and, and not that there's anything wrong with that but it's like it seems like there was just kind of an expectation that if you're making a horror movie monsters and stuff that it's just going to be silly and wacky and so yeah wanting to make something that's a little bit more like dark and feels a little bit more in the vein of something like the thing where it's like the movie has humor in it there is bits of levy but like treat the material seriously and treat your monsters seriously and actually like try to make a scary movie that was that was the basic challenge that we came up with for ourselves was let's try and actually make a thing that's kind of scary because that's like the toughest thing you can do in my opinion as a challenge
3: met and exceeded absolutely blown away. And I I ended up catching it uh, after it was out on home release. And I, I wish I had seen it make the circuit because I would have been ever since I, I got a copy of this movie personally. I, it's been out of my possession for longer than I've personally had it because I've lent it out to everybody I possibly can. I just yeah. have to show it off.
1: The other weird thing about that movie is it hit at a time like when physical media seemed like it was totally going to die out. When we finished it, we really were concerned that we would not be able to put this movie on Blu-ray or DVD. Like The companies that we sold to were like, oh, there's not really a market for that anymore. We even made the UK release all region because we were concerned like well if we don't even get a blu-ray in north america like how are people going to get this movie so it landed at a very weird time in the horror kind of world like in horror culture where yeah i, don't know, I feel like if it came out like now or even like last year like it probably would have hit harder. Like, it's crazy. It's like night and day between that and PG, where like PG, there wasn't even like a discussion of like, will we have a Blu-ray? It was like, <laughs> no, we're gonna have, like a special edition and a regular edition. We'll have a DVD and we'll have a VHS. And like, it was just immediately dived into it. Whereas with The Void, it yeah, I was very surprised at the time that like we had to fight to put it, put it out and get it to people. So it was like tough to access for a while, which uh, was unfortunate. But it seems like it's out there now. I think it's on prime i don't know i'll be like scrolling through streaming services and randomly i'll come across (laughs) and be like oh there's my movie i guess
3: (laughs) (laughs) anytime i see it on any of the platforms i always linger
0: i think it's uh, it's great that you mentioned how at the time that you guys released the void physical media was kind of dying and now you guys are just inundated with ideas for media for pg is that something that was like a marketing choice after the initial reception or did you guys always have that planned because i know you've got some ideas in the works for things like action figures and uh the vinyl came out and like you mentioned the vhs
1: i wanted to make a movie that felt like it was from that era where it had all this ancillary product to go along with it. That's why very early on, we partnered with Plastic Meatball, the company that's doing the action figures, as well as other merchandise items, uh, like the collectible glasses, this like kind of fake Happy Meal box that we came up with. Because I just love that era of movie where it's like, you're not just making a movie, you're making like a whole kind of like pop culture thing that penetrates everything. Yeah, it was always the plan from the beginning was that, like, merchandise is something to embrace on this. There was, like, kind of an era where that was frowned upon. And I think now, especially with movies having such a short lifespan, it's a way of extending, like, the longevity of the film that you've made. Because, I don't know, it seems like with streaming and everything, just the quick turnaround on stuff, people will talk about a thing for a weekend. And then it it's almost like it didn't exist after that. Like, it just goes away. So... I wanted to make something that's stuck in people's brains just by being a weird movie to begin with, but then also (laughs) having stuff to, like, post about and have people talking about, because, yeah, like, people will talk about the vinyl release and want to get, they'll talk about a VHS, they'll talk about action figures. Like, these are things that keep your movie in conversation, and it's a thing that movies used to have, and especially in the eras that I grew up in. Like, I have very vivid memories of getting, like, those batman forever glasses from I think it was burger king <laughs> maybe mcdonald's but you've uh, got to
0: collect every piece
1: yeah like you just want to get all that stuff because it's it's cool and it feels limited and special to this movie and it it helps like expand the universe of the thing that you've created so it's not just like you watch this thing for 90 minutes and it's done and you go do something else it's like you, it's like constantly penetrating your brain in different ways. So yeah, the marketing was a very conscious decision, uh, like with, with the merchandise being in mind, uh, with how we're promoting the movie and how to like keep promoting it well past its actual release. Cause I, I know think the, the three great. of us, yeah.
3: like we come from uh, a generation of, of collectors, everything that, uh, was, uh, on TV or, or in, in the cinema was came with, extra material so like even you can see in anna's background she's got knickknacks and shot i'm in my office i don't have anything here a lot of your work i feel comes from like that, that collector's mindset of like oh i have all these action figures like oh um manborg for for instance it spoke right to my soul of like it felt like you were making a movie for me which is so
1: strange oh nice yeah that's the thing is every movie i make i feel like it's very specific And I'm kind of just making it for myself, but then it gets out into the world and then I'm like, oh, there's actually like other people that I've shared these experiences with. Like I've had so many conversations with people about watching movies as a kid that are like not suitable for kids and (laughs) the kind of combined like thrill and excitement of watching a thing you're not supposed to be watching and then also the terror of seeing stuff that like your kid brain isn't ready for terminator 2 was the earliest example for me but also robocop like really traumatized me because when that kid a <laughs> one guy gets melted by the toxic waste and then hit by the car like that part is messed up and even as a <laughs> grown-up it's horrifying so like as a kid it really for for like a movie that had like cartoon and action figures and video games and all this kid-friendly stuff like it has like the least kid-friendly scene in a movie in the 80s like at the time so yeah I I find that really interesting and it seems like a lot of people have shared that experience as well where they're like watching stuff when they're like way too young for it and it just stays in their brain like it's like I'm always thinking about these things and that's (laughs) why my movies are the way that they are because I guess it's me like kind of working through that trauma a little bit (laughs) i can
3: see like the the melting stuck with you through and through (laughs) (laughs) yeah the
1: melting biocop came from like and that's a character that's just going to keep popping up in all my stuff now because i feel good
2: yes on the Manborg dvd that i have it said on the back that it included the short film biocop and i'd already seen the trailer which is the short film. And so I was like, we're going to get a full Biocop. So I got the DVD, put it on, and I was like, where is Biocop? And it wasn't there. And I really want a Biocop movie. So is that, I, is he just going to be a reoccurring character? or Is that going to be? problem feature- I
1: have with Biocop is he feels like a, like an SNL sketch. So think about how SNL sketches translate into feature films and how usually that doesn't go very well. <laughs> I think he's a character that's best served coming in and out of a narrative and kind of, like, just being, like, a tornado of problems, Uh, (laughs) because I don't really want to know, like, what his, like, pathos is or, like, what his, like, arc as a character is, because that's not what's funny about it, but, I mean, he's in PG, and he'll keep coming back in that universe as well, like, he's not... It's not going away anytime soon. I don't think there'll be like a solo adventure, though I do kind of want to maybe do another short film at some point. I think bottom line is small doses for BioCop is the way to go. (laughs) Everybody says they want like 90 minutes of him, and I can tell you with full confidence, you don't want that. Not actually gonna be good.
2: That makes sense. Yeah. I feel like if it if it was actually a full length feature, it would be like completely different characters, but reminds me of like Sergeant Kabuki Man from the Troma universe. Like Works better as a cameo character than full length. Definitely. So that, that, that makes sense. Okay. Uh, maybe, like if, maybe some comics would be fun. Yeah, <laughs> comics would be good. I
1: mean, anything that doesn't mean I have to do all the work I'm writing. <laughs> like, somebody else wants to make comics or, say, a video game or something, like, yes, please, and I can just supervise, I'm all over it. But, yeah, if there was a movie, I feel like he needs to be part of an ensemble and not just him. Living his miserable life. Because you don't want to watch a depressed person try to kill themselves for ninety minutes, because that's essentially all the character is. That's awful. So yeah. But he's but he'll definitely come back. Like I think there's gonna be more biocop in the future in weird, unexpected ways, is what I can promise right now.
0: I love to hear that. The correlation side of my brain has been like on fire watching <laughs> your films. And I have to ask, is there in your mind, a consistent, like, Kostansky-verse?
1: Yeah, I feel like there is a bit of a a Kostansky-verse slowly being woven together now with all my movies. I definitely think, like, for future adventures of PG, I want to try and weave in other characters from other Love stuff that. because, yeah, I feel like it's like a nice way to kind of reward people who've stuck around <laughs> since like, <laughs> the beginning of my film career. And even of just like Astron sixes output. And also, yeah, it's just like such a bizarre idea that like, you know, there's like a connected universe of like super low budget genre movies. So I guess it's basically what Charles band wanted to do. I don't know if you guys read about his, like, we want to do, like, an Avengers movie that had mm-hmm. Dollman and Dr. Mordred and, like, a bunch of characters that he came up with. So, I mean, there is kind of, like, a bit of a history of, like, a low-budget filmmakers trying to do it. So anything that tries to continue that guy's legacy, I'm right on
0: board to it. I think you're doing a great job of it. Like I said, my brain keeps trying to put all these pieces together, wondering if, you know, Biocop is going to go up against Carl or anything.
1: Good, Yeah, <laughs> Carl needs to go somewhere. He's, he's a character that like I have a lot of respect for because it's such a personal story that I don't want to like reduce him to a joke. But at the same time, like I think I think there's like a an interesting verse there that warrants more exploration, whether it's another short film or a feature just for him or something. Uh, it's certainly something I've like started writing in the past and kind of had to put aside. I'm a big fan of like revisiting these old ideas because feel like they came at a very like pure time in my creativity where i wasn't as like beaten down by the film industry it was just me in my parents basement making movies and having fun so there's something kind of like raw and like real about that as opposed to right making stuff now where everything has to be kind of tailored to what market expectations are and trying to appeal to you know Like make four quadrant content is like a discussion I hate having now. So yeah, I like the idea of revisiting older stories and characters that I've come up with and kind of rejuvenating them as a way of just kind of revisiting my my past filmography.
0: Carl came about almost immediately after you graduated, right? Carl, like the first
1: film, yeah, 2005. Uh, So I had just started university at that point. And that was when I was really deep into doing stop motion and then integrating it with live action. So it was definitely it definitely qualifies as an experimental movie because even the live action in the movie is stop motion. Like the whole thing is still pictures. So it's just something I wanted to try out and be like, can I like sustain this for five minutes? Will this actually be watchable? So yeah, I mean there's there's a lot of weird stuff I was trying there, but I would I would go back to that universe at some point again yeah it was my first i don't want to call like my breakout movie but it was my first movie i attempted to like submit to film festivals and like people at the winnipeg film group saw it uh like some of the programmers there and were like oh we should like play this guy's movies that stuff because he's making weird stuff so yeah it was the first thing that kind of put me on people's radars at least locally in like the local film scene uh so yeah i have a, a special nostalgia for that movie
0: How did Astron 6 come together? Because like almost immediately after that is when we really start to see the whole team kind of forming.
1: Yeah, I mean, there was a, a short film festival in Winnipeg called the Winnipeg Short Film Massacre that would play locally shot horror short films every Halloween. It was like an annual event. Everybody would go, you'd get dressed up in Halloween costumes. You'd watch all these local short films that these local filmmakers would make. And then a panel of judges would pick the top three. So there was like a contest component. uh, And also it was just kind of like this like Halloween event that everybody liked in the city. Uh, So I had actually met Adam Brooks prior to submitting to that festival. He was a friend of a friend. So I had kind of like met him at a few social gatherings. We started talking. I feel like our first conversation was probably him explaining to me why trauma movies are great or something. And I did, I just remember being like, Oh, this guy's into movies and like weird stuff. I want to hang out with him. And so we had started kind of talking, collaborating on stuff. He'd help me with my movies. I'd help him with his stuff. He was the one that told me to submit to this film festival. He was also submitting his horror shorts. Uh, and that's where we saw stuff by Matt and Connor, who had the label gray point at that time, they had their like horror comedy shorts that they submitted Jeremy co-ran the festival, so he wasn't submitting movies, but he was just kind of part of, like, overseeing the festival. So he was watching all of our stuff, and we met him, and we all kind of started to get to know each other. And so, yeah, one year we decided, like, why don't we all, like, kind of help each other out because we like what we're all doing. It was, like, a bit of, like, an intimidation of, like, seeing somebody else that's really good and being like, yeah, like, screw those guys, they're doing a good job, I gotta up my game. And then realizing, like, well, how about I up my game by putting those guys in my movie? And how about in exchange, I'll do effects for Matt and Connor and for Adam and like we'll all just kind of help each other out. And so one year we all kind of collaborated on each other's projects and decided like, hey, wouldn't it be cool to have like an old school videos like company logo at the beginning? It was there was no plan of like, oh, let's make this like an actual like film collective or production company. It was just like, hey, let's put this logo here because it's funny. At the time, that kind of nostalgia wasn't really a thing. Like, this is back in, like, 2006, 2007. So, like, yeah, I feel like stuff like Laser Ghosts that we were doing or, like, (laughs) cool guys, like, those those sorts of things weren't as commonplace, I guess, as they are now. So, yeah, for us at the time, it felt like, oh, we all really, like, love this specific era of movies, and, like, we all have – this really deep nostalgia for it. Let's really tap into that. And like, that's the personality of all the things we're making is like, imagine we're a fake video company in the eighties, like trying to churn out product. And so that kind of motivated everything that we came up with from that point on. And so, yeah, the following year at the short film massacre, like all our movies had this logo at the beginning <laughs> and everybody like, we're this, like, what is Astron six? Like, what is this thing that's popping up before every movie now? And then, yeah, we just became known as this, like, group of guys that were always making shorts together. The rest is history, I guess. (laughs) There's plenty of story to go after that, but that's the basic (laughs) setup of Astron 6, yeah.
2: There is something so comforting about seeing the Astron 6 logo, because it does just make me think of being a kid watching all of these 80s films on VHS and always having a logo like that. So when it came up I was just instantly like, Ah, oh, I feel good about this.
1: Jeremy and Adam whipped that logo together like pretty quickly and I we all just immediately were like, Yeah, that's it. There was no like, oh, let's like workshop this a bit. It was just like, Yeah, that feels right. This yeah, it gives you that vibe of like watching a Vestron movie or something or like Canon films. Like you just want that comfort of it being like an eighties production logo for something that uh yeah makes a lot of straight to video action horror sci-fi stuff or or like a for me full moon personally is like the one that i always gravitate towards because that's really what influenced me the most and then growing up uh, like the puppet masters and the doll mans and yeah. all of them
0: it also just it carries with it uh i guess also because we've kind of done this consistently through this notion that like if we're in for an Astron six movie we know who some of the usual players are and then seeing who switches roles into where it just it feels nice it feels like we're kind of a part of that as well yeah
1: see i really like that too and it's a thing that i want to keep doing like with every movie that i make like i love that with pg i was able to get adam matt and connor in there <laughs> because yeah i like the idea of you're just like making these movies with your friends cycling through who plays who And there is like a weird kind of comfort and familiarity with that. Yeah, I don't know. I I like when directors have like an actor that they always like to go with. I don't know. There's just something like relatable to that. And it just makes you connect with the material a little better. I think it feels less alien and I don't know. I think it's good, and it's something that I'm going to keep doing as much as I can. As long as these guys are willing to act in my stuff, I'll keep <laughs> sticking them in it.
0: That's definitely one of the one of the drawing points for me when looking at the whole Astron 6 catalog, like seeing, like, okay, I know that you did special effects here, and, you know, Adam's writing and directing here, and then you get things like Chow Boys, where <laughs> it's you, Adam, and Jeremy, and, I mean, that is just... We, we watched them, and we're like, instant Christmas classic.
1: Oh, I love Chow Boys. I think it's the best Astron 6 thing that we've made. It's such a perfect, like, summary of everything that's great about Astron 6, and also kind of everything that's wrong with us, too. Like, <laughs> it took us so long to film that short, and we didn't have a script. We, like, tried to make it up all in one night and shoot it, and it had to come back. It was like, we shot it over one night, one Christmas, like, immediately after we finished The Void jeremy and i just got it in our heads that like we need to shoot this short film it's called chow boys and we don't know what it's about but we like <laughs> them. so we just like we went back to winnipeg to like see our families for christmas we told the other guys that we like all went out for dinner one night we're like all right so we're making this thing called chow boys let's figure this out so there's gonna be cowboys probably cannibalism we assume and there's no discussion of like should we do this should we not? we're just gonna go shoot it and that's it and so yeah we just were like making it up on the spot basically and then having to come back the following christmas to reshoot stuff and then come back the following christmas to shoot <laughs> stuff so it took years to make this 10 minute work which is a good summary of how unorganized Astron 6 is but i do think the magic is really on screen and i think like especially just in the cast, like, I love that everybody, like, the five of us all get to act in it, playing different characters, and I feel like everybody's firing on all cylinders, and it's just super fun, and wacky, and just total nonsense, and so, yeah, I'm very proud of of Chowboys, and I hope that uh, someday when the world settles down a bit, and our lives settle down a bit, we can all, like, get together and do something like that again, because it, like, really is the most fun. It's like all I want to be doing with my time is making stuff like Chowboys with the rest of Astron 6.
3: Let me tell you, I could tell that the, the fun was there. The passion was there. And I love when I can sit down and watch a movie and get the vibe that the people making it were just doing what they wanted to just having a, a good time with their friends. And that makes me feel so, so warm inside as someone like I'd love goofing around with my buddies and doing something creative. and that absolutely shines through in chow boys
1: there's something to be said for just embracing nonsense and embracing like a stream of consciousness when making making a movie uh, it's a freedom you don't get a lot you know typically the process is you have to like write a thing and then revise it a million times and like you're trying to appeal to different people but when it's just you and your friends like out in the woods inhaling smoke from this fire that's been going for like eight <laughs> hours And you're like getting a little woozy from it. Like, that's when all the crazy ideas come from. One I always go back to is on Father's Day when we figured out there was a continuity error. uh, Like, Ahab shoots himself to go to hell and he's not wearing his jacket. But when he shows up in hell, he has his jacket on. And we're all freaking out like we're we're in the studio where we're shooting. We had a green screen set up and we're like, oh, well, this doesn't make any sense. What are we going to do? You know, we're all delirious because we're exhausted, pissed off at each other and just frustrated. And somehow out of that weird energy came this idea of like, well, what if like you die and your clothes like (laughs) they become sentient and then follow you? To hell because they want to like be with you in hell. So we came up with this <laughs> moment of Adam like flying to hell and then like his jacket coming and, and like, Jacket, there you are, and his jacket, like like in a weird reverse shot, like going back onto his body. So like moments like that to me are what I live for when making movies because it's just so unbelievably stupid that you can't argue with it. To me, it's just perfection. Everything I love about telling stories is that being able to embrace that level of stupid. Was the passion that we embrace it with.
0: There are so many times where we're like, yeah, this is just how we talk to each other. This feels like home.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's also the vibe of watching movies, too. Part of the reason I like making movies is because I love watching movies with my friends and like kind of riffing and joking, and you get that kind of shorthand talking about stuff. As a teenager, like growing up, every weekend was just consuming shitty movies with my friends and making fun of them and laughing and having a good time. And so to be able to bring that spirit to the movies that I'm making, to give you a bit of the vibe that you're not just watching a movie you're like watching it with the filmmaker who's kind of like taking the piss out of his own movie at the same time, but not in a winky sort of way, in a really like absurd kind of way.
0: Just uh, leaning into it.
1: Yeah, like embracing the thing that you're making, taking the work seriously, taking the craft seriously, but also like being able to go like, yeah, we'll have a flying jacket that talks and being like, that's a good idea, guys. Let's move forward on that. I think is, is super important in, in at least like the kind of spirit that Astron Six movies, even some like The Void, like we just embrace the weirdness in a different way where it's like, we're going to commit to this guy who's stabbing his head into a pipe on the wall. That's oh, the thing.
0: Unnerves me
1: so much. <laughs> like, it's the kind of thing that like I just like threw into the script. and was like, yeah, there's a guy stabbing his face to a pipe. And like Jeremy wasn't like, oh, we, that doesn't make sense. It was like, oh, yeah, that's that's nuts. Let's keep that in there. Like just being able to have that confidence of like weird is good and knowing that it'll land with people, I think is important because I don't know. I get a vibe a lot of movies that I watch where they're taking like the safe route or they're taking a route that they think is like messed up and like gonna like super be super edgy. And it's like, no, it's just kind of like all the other things that are coming out right now. It's like, it takes a special kind of like, I don't know if it's ignorance or confidence, <laughs> able to commit to those kinds of things and be like, yeah, this pregnant lady's stomach explodes and then a giant, like hulking monster somehow comes out of that and starts pursuing our heroes not stopping to worry about making sense of that i think is important especially like in a horror movies context specific Mm -hmm. nightmare logic is important i think the best movies embrace that so just sticking with it and not getting hung up on on logic because that's too much logic can suck the fun out of your story in my
0: opinion. I agree. And then there's these things kind of leave room for you to fill in the blanks yourself, fill in with your own imagination. And again, where my correlation brain goes crazy, where I'm like, okay, so this is something that exists in the realm of the void, but does this also exist in Psycho Gorman? Between watching the two of those, I started thinking about whether or not PG and the doctor could potentially be from the same species. Because uh, they both exist in these nightmare hellscapes. And then if that's the rule of it, is hell a planet or another dimension? Is Manborg here? <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, that's true, because he certainly didn't go to heaven, according to his dead brother. No, that's entirely possible. I like that idea that hell is just a place that everybody has to go at some point, And it sucks. <laughs> uh, I mean, I like leaving things open to the audience. Because it's part of that, like, audience participation that I think is crucial. It's also part of the reason why, like, I get annoyed when people immediately are like, I want to know what the deal is with these characters. Like, are you going to give us a prequel explaining every single facet of this alien council? And it's like, do you really want that? like sometimes i just want to like reach into my phone into instagram comments and like grab people and be like do you want to know like what these characters, like where they came from is it that important don't you remember the star wars prequels we didn't need to know what <laughs> vader's deal was yeah i just like the idea of like open ended stuff that you can discuss after and be like here's what i think it is because then the audience can participate and i think that adds to the The point I was making earlier about longevity in your film, it's like if you just answer all the questions and tie it up with a neat little bow, like what's to talk about after? Like what are you going to discuss with with your like movie pals later? What are you going to discuss on your podcast? What are you going to write about on your review site? Like what is the discussion that's happening? That's the most important part. And so if you leave things open and you leave questions for people to have to answer themselves, you're just like kind of cultivating that discussion which i think is super important
0: i think all of your films do a great job of that like i said it just keeps me putting pieces together and we've seen a lot of recent films where almost every resolution i'm seeing in the last like three or four years of movies is the directors or the writers feeling the need to explain what the audience just watched I don't want that. I don't want to be recapped on what I just watched for two and a half hours. Oh, totally. I don't need to know why Alistair is a brain, but I love that Alistair is a brain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You just want
1: stuff to happen and then be like, Whoa, that's a weird thing that happened. like, If nothing is unexpected, then how are you going to be on like a roller coaster ride in a movie if everything is over explained? Though also I find other movies sometimes go so far like in not explaining that like it has the same kind of effect of like, well, this is meaningless because I don't know anything. It's a very fine line you have to walk where you give enough information that the plot can move forward and the characters have meaning and motivation and you're on this ride and it's got a forward momentum. But then also not explaining it so much that you're getting bored and the ride is ground to a halt because there's a guy at a chalkboard pointing out all where all the things connect. So yeah, I don't know. I feel like you just gotta balance those things and like withhold some information, give other information bits of information. I find a good rule is like for every question you answer, like open up ten more questions. With that answer, make more questions. So people have something to wonder about instead of like, there it is. There was Jigsaw's plan all along. (laughs) Like that kind of thing. So yeah, it's all about balance.
0: I think it's so important that you've emphasized that idea of balance, the idea of making sure that the craft is good and then everything else can just be whatever you want it to be. You see a lot of these genre films and there's a tendency to be like, okay, somebody is intentionally out there trying to make a genre film. But I don't see that with Astron 6. I don't see that with your filmography. I see there's the attention to detail of this story has an A story, a B story, and a C story. It's got a linear plot. Even something like, uh, in San it is so <laughs> wild and out there, but there is a, there's a direct story. There's a two main characters. We know what their wants and needs are. They go out for a goal and whether or not they achieve it is another story.
1: Wow. That is a deep cut pulling San Ophenia out from the roster but i appreciate that yeah i mean for me personally it's like as long as the emotional story makes sense like it's easy to hang nonsense off of that i guess i'm just a very intuitive filmmaker and storyteller like i'm not don't i'm not that intellectual when it comes to like writing scripts or planning my movies that i want to make it's more just like does this feel good In the arc of this story, like, at this point, I want to feel a certain way. And at this point, I want to feel this way. And just making sure things line up so I get that feeling. Yeah, I think mapping out those simple arcs and then building on that is important. And, like, kind of layering things on top of that. I find, like, you can get a little too bogged down with trying to follow, like, a narrative structure. Like, I don't particularly like the, like, save the cat Kind of thing. Got to have your inciting incident in the first like 10 minutes or whatever. And like that's got to kick off the plot. I don't know if you guys have seen uh, the movie Sorcerer, uh, the William Friedkin movie. Don't think so. I have not. It's a remake of Wages of Fear. The basic premise is a bunch of kind of like washed up dudes in Brazil. I'm sure somebody will listen to this and correct me on that. But they're (laughs) somewhere, somewhere in South America, I believe. And they have to drive these trucks full of nitro. It's basically the plot of that Mandalorian episode. If that's, <laughs> if that's yep. a relatable premise, They're driving these trucks. The trucks will explode if they get jostled in any sort of way or drive too fast. Very video gamey trope. But it's in this movie, a French movie called Wages of Fear. Then was remade by William Friedkin in the 70s. It got buried because it unfortunately came out the same day as Star Wars. So that's why nobody talks about it. But anyways, this movie... Yeah, it's such a simple premise, and that premise doesn't kick in until an hour into the movie. And I watched it recently and was like, "Wow, this totally like blows that like logic of like, well, you gotta like hit you gotta hit the ground running and start your plot immediately." It's like this movie's super engaging, spends an hour just building characters, and then the plot kicks in. So I really don't think there is a right or wrong way to make a movie and tell a story. It's just as long as it's like it just has to work, like it has to feel right. And you can take all sorts of avenues to get to that. So, yeah. And I find a, a lot of filmmakers get bogged down in like, we have to follow this exact structure to get to like these certain beats at this certain time. And it becomes instinctively predictable where you just kind of know, you know, you're in that part of the movie where all the characters are going to split up and not be friends. And then they're going to meet up in 10 minutes and make up and fight the bad thing. And then everything will be good. I, I at least try to keep it open when I'm going on this path of telling different stories and trying to mix it up while also staying true to kind of what I feel like is the emotional arc of each story.
0: Especially when it comes to how many things can come up between writing, shooting, and editing. I mean, even like you just said with Father's Day, you guys couldn't have anticipated that that was going to happen with uh, Adam's jacket, so you come up with something entirely new. How often... And what are some of the biggest ones you've encountered? Does something change from script to screen for you?
1: That happens on every project. Things are changing constantly. I'm actually very surprised at how much PG stayed true to the initial treatment that I wrote. The first like eight page pass that I did of like what I wanted the movie to be is almost like beat for beat exactly what the movie ended up being, which seems to never happen. Like, every other (laughs) version changed, like, dramatically uh, throughout the process. So, if anything, that is weird and unexpected, like, compared to what normally happens. People have said before that, like, you're always making three movies. You're, like, writing one movie, you're shooting another movie, and you're editing another movie. And they're all, each one is completely different from the previous one. With the exception of PG, I feel like That has happened on everything else. Like, what was in my head, at least at the start of The Void, is not what it ended up being at the end. Manborg definitely evolved as we were going. Like, I think broad strokes, all this stuff was essentially what it was supposed to be, but circumstance forces you to change things on the fly. Like, when you're shooting a movie, like, anything can happen. The weather can go to shit. Your actors can end up in the hospital for some reason. You can get derailed by literally anything at any time. And so go into I just go in knowing that stuff is going to change. I try to just have like a mental bracket of like, here's like the low end expectation of what I want to get out of the day. And here's like my fantasy high hopes of like what we get today. And I mean, yeah, it usually ends up in the lower end of the spectrum, especially like working in TV because you don't have time to shoot anything. So, yeah, I think just knowing to how to roll with punches makes a big difference. I mean, editing your own stuff helps, too. Like with <laughs> being able to edit the movie. Well, certainly at times, like I was cursing myself for agreeing to do it because I didn't want to have to stay up all night for like months on end trying to like bang this thing together. But at the same time, like shooting it, I knew I knew when I had enough to make a thing. It's it's always that fight, especially in low budget filmmaking is shooting enough to know like, oh, I can make a scene out of this. If we just shoot a little bit more, I could maybe make a good scene out of it. But knowing like what the bare minimum is to like stitch a thing together because you're editing in your head is super helpful. I think for indie filmmakers, that's important. Like, I don't know how indie filmmakers who don't edit their own movies operate. That seems like it would be a nightmare to me. Like, you kind of want to have an editor brain if you're going to work in the no-budget world, because that's how you can be efficient and stretch your dollars as far as you can. But yeah, I don't even remember what the initial question was.
3: (laughs) I do have a a quick question uh, as far as script to screen, which I think is where we started, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, uh, and to do another deep cut back to <laughs> there we were talking about this before. The characters are playing characters that are voiced by the opposite character?
1: They're just voiced by completely different people. Uh, oh. uh, was My friend Matt Kendrick, Will O'Donnell, and Adam Brooks played the three main characters in Insanifinia. But then Matt Kennedy, Connor Sweeney, uh, and my friend Danny Rivett voiced the three characters. So it's like six people to bring three people to life. I, I have no real like answer on why I did that because that movie was the most stream of consciousness movie where I was just like, this seems like the right thing to do right now. Uh, I'm going to do that, whether it makes any kind of logical sense or not.
3: It hey, works for me. I got a, a huge kick out of it when the credits came up. Anthony had to like, point it out to me. I was like, what are you talking about? And then, and then it clicked. And I was like, this this is great. I, I appreciate that kind of stuff. Just uh, like you said, stream of consciousness and leading into the silly and absurdity.
1: Well, and also I... I'm such a fan of anime dubbing and video game dubbing <laughs> and, and like old Kung Fu movie dubbing. I would legitimately make a whole movie with like the kind of voice work that's in like the original House of the Dead games. Where wow, yes. <laughs> like the guy that voices, what's his name? Goldman, the the villain. The bad guy, yeah. Yeah, like I would do a whole movie with characters that talk like that guy. <laughs> and I would be totally okay with it, but I know no studio would ever agree to it, but it's a fun thing to fantasize about. I don't know if it's nostalgia or I just very childish and think it's funny, but like, there's just something about it that really warms my heart. Like somebody trying to say a thing and doing a bad job at it. It's really uh, just something emotionally honest about that to me. So I always want to embrace it as much as possible.
3: Is that where uh, the inspiration for Number One Man in Manboard came from? Did you? Was it always the intent?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, that was always the plan was to have him sound like an old school kung fu guy.
3: And what a great pull to get Kyle Hebert. He's voiced so much that I grew up loving and appreciating.
1: Oh yeah, he's great. Well, I mean, he, uh, I actually hit him up again recently because uh, we did those commercials for for those PG collectible glasses and for the Happy Meals.
3: Mm-hmm. That we,
1: uh, so that's actually kyle that's he's the narrator of both those commercials um, oh wow yeah so i mean i'll keep i'll keep hitting that guy up as long as he's available because he's super good and also he's like maybe the most like the speediest voiced actor i've ever worked with where i will send him the email and then like I'll like walk away to go get a glass of water or something and come back. And he'll have like sent me like (laughs) three three passes of the dialogue. And it's like, is this good? And it's like, okay, great. Like nobody in the industry works that fast. So it's a breath of fresh air working with somebody that can deliver something that quickly. So yeah, I will always use that guy.
3: That's fantastic. And, And very refreshing to hear that someone whose voice you've been listening to for your entire life is still doing stuff. And being a part of things that you
1: cherish, that rocks. I mean, being a voice actor seems like a pretty sweet gig. To be able to just sit at your computer and throw down lines and ship them off. Like, you don't have to go to set. Your auditions probably are pretty minimal. Like, especially somebody like him who's been working as long as he has. You're just a known quantity in the voice acting community. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's the field that I'm i am a little jealous of people who can bust into. Because I feel like it's <laughs> probably good money and pretty low impact work compared to having to be on set in front of a camera all the time.
3: Yeah. And clearly it's got some longevity to it. People do it for that. And like that is just their career. That is their contribution to to the industry is just their voice for as long as they have it.
1: Well, on uh, the episodes of day of the dead that I worked on, uh, we had, his name's Gary chalk, who he did like Optimus Primal in Beast Wars. He's like a pretty prolific voice actor, and so he was just playing like a like a side character on Day of the Dead. But I was like fanboying pretty hard, and he actually like between between takes, he would do like little Optimus Primal uh, lines. Because
3: that yes, Beast Jared. Wars was my introduction to the Transformers when I was a kid, and oh my, looking, I'm looking at his like credits right now.
2: Wait, was he the Transformers the movie Optimus Prime voice? He yeah. was when he
3: was the gorilla from the early 90s.
1: So there was like the CG animated show Beast Wars which was also called Beasties in Canada because I guess it's Canada. Yeah, Aww. I guess you have war in Canada your titles yeah, yeah that's our specialty yeah so he's, <laughs> he's in tons of stuff like he's a vancouver guy so like he's in like freddie versus jason he's like the police chief and that like he's just such a classic like character actor he's in x-files but for me yeah it's all about uh beast wars with him that's my that's my brush with fame in the voice acting world. That I
0: <laughs> you've had a hand in just about every element of filmmaking that somebody can have at this point right yeah i mean
1: i even technically did a little bit of stunts on the void it's actually something i was like kind of thinking of getting into at one point but then came to my senses and was like that would be <laughs> totally end of my career by breaking my spine at some point but uh yeah i don't know i've touched on a lot of stuff never really done sound work, though you should probably learn how to do that, yeah, I don't know. that's when you're making movies in your parents' garage for no money, you kind of have to do everything yourself so and I've you know heard stories about like people like James Cameron saying you have to know everybody's job on a film set better than they know it to actually know if they're like bullshitting you or not and so i I agree with that logic because having worked on film sets as a prosthetics artist like on big shows, you can see there's definitely like. There's definitely jobbers out there. There's people who are very passionate about the work, but then there's also people that are going to phone it in and just kind of do the bare minimum. And especially when you're making like an indie movie, you want to just want to make sure people are like bringing their A game because every little bit counts. So, yeah, you kind of need to know how everything works and what it takes to like get the shots that you want. So, having a little bit of experience in every department uh, definitely helps.
0: Having experienced all of that, what would you say are your favorite and least favorite parts of the filmmaking process?
1: I don't like casting. Don't like watching endless like self-tapes. I don't like like having to sit through in-person auditions. I just like feel bad cuz I just want to like be nice and cast everybody. It's kind of like the most merciless job that a director has. And I feel like some directors like love that kind of like god power of being able to like, next, I don't like them. I want to be like, oh, well, thank you for coming out. I appreciate your effort, but you just are not right for the role. Like having to say stuff like that is anxiety-inducing to me. So yeah, the casting process I find a little irritating. I don't love writing either, and that's like the hell that I'm in right now is trying to develop projects, but I don't want to sit at my computer and tap at my keyboard all day. So I'll literally procrastinate and do anything else at every opportunity. Yeah, I'm like a I'm a very like visual person. I wanna just make stuff. Like I will I will sculpt a hundred heads before I finish like another ninety page script. I just get so much more out of making a thing and kind of understanding The story I want to tell from that physical thing. I'm a visual filmmaker in that way. I want to like make stuff and look at it in 3D space as a way of like understanding the story I want to tell. Yeah, writing and casting are two things I don't like. I mean, there's definitely points where I don't like any of the jobs at all. (laughs) Like it can be hell in every single stage of making a film, and I've experienced it in every stage on different different projects. But uh, I don't know. I love. Like, I love shooting stuff. Like, I love production. I love being out of pre-production. And it's less about people, like, asking a million questions, more just about, like, having to do the thing. Like, the train has left the station. You have to shoot your movie. You have to make your days. Yeah, I just find that super, like, energizing. Like, all those problems that come up. i showing up on set and finding out, like, oh, that actor playing this character uh, had to go home because he, like, was muting on the set. So can you ask him randomly? (laughs) Oh
2: my God. Like I like,
1: I don't like that that happened, but I do feel like my brain, something switches on in my brain when those situations come up where I'm like almost out of spite. I'm like, I'm going to figure this out because the heavens clearly want this to fail. So I'm going to like do what I got to do to, to reach the finish line and make a good thing just to prove that I can. So I, I love that part of production. I love the problem solving component and like, making art out of total chaos essentially
0: that's kind of how the creatures were born in the void right you didn't really have a set design but you went in with what you had on hand right
1: yeah well it was a lot of like what can we make with what we have i did do a few designs like i did a maquette for the beverly monster so i did like a little miniature sculpt of her uh because that one was so abstract like trying to explain to people like yeah it's like a (laughs) it's like a cocoon thing with a lady hanging off of the front and it's like sucking the life out of a lady and there's like also another monster inside the cocoon that comes out just saying that to people was like not enough to really convey what needed to be built it was definitely a very interesting first meeting at the creature shop on that show it was like, day 1 i had the build list and it was just like this endless like pages after page of just stuff that needed to be made and it would be like then dr powell like cuts his face off and got like a scary skeleton man face underneath then the fetus monster bursts out of uh the pregnant girl and like like just trying to explain these things with no like real reference was a little disheartening because everybody in the shop who has worked in the industry for like 20 plus years was looking at me like is this guy like does he know how this works or is he just <laughs> making up as he goes along but i do still think that for me the best way to make creatures is to kind of design as you build i like going like here's a bunch of stuff that i have what can i make out of this stuff and then you kind of start combining things together There's like a way more like arts and crafts kind of vibe to it and less like Hollywood. Like we're going to get somebody to do a Z brush design and then we're all going to sit around a table and look at it and make notes on what we want to change. And then they'll revise the design and they'll revise it again after that. Because I find with that process, you always whittle these things down to looking exactly the same where it's like, even though I actually do like this design, like feel like the Steppenwolf in Zack Snyder's Mm -hmm. Justice League. Where it's like he's got like a million knives on him is like kind of like what creature design is now. It's like just a constantly like undulating thing that does not look real in any way. And Yeah, so,
0: I kind of blame Stranger Things for that. We got the two years worth of just Demogorgons.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like I, that design to me feels like a very committee design where it's like the initial concept of like a flowery face that opens up is okay, but it's just everything else about it. It's like, well, it's just like an emaciated gray thing. And then that turned into every monster in every movie for a while. My design process is trying to get away from that, especially with some like PG. It's like, well, I got all these foam mats. What if I glued them together into a big basin and then put a bunch of like polyfoam heads (laughs) and arms coming out of it? And, yeah, why don't I talk to Mike at effects and see if he can hook up some, like, hosing so he can spray blood out of his arms. And now he's a big trash can that sprays blood at people. Like, that was the thought process that led to what Death Trapper is. And it wasn't like, I'm going to sit down and draw it and then discuss it with people. It was more just like, I need a monster that's crazy. What kind of things do I have at my disposal right now? And I just, like, mash them together so yeah it's not the most conventional approach but it's how i like to do things because it always leads to something
0: fun and wacky there's so much intricate makeup and costuming in pg for uh, for like a council scene how long was the process to get everybody into makeup
1: i mean thankfully a lot of those weren't makeups per se a lot of them were just like Step into the suit and we'll zip it up the back and let us know if you need to go to the bathroom in the next (laughs) hours. Like somebody like Pandora, like there's definitely like a suiting up process. I think is more appropriate. You just have to like put on layers and layers of stuff to kind of get to the final look. I think the only one that was a makeup was Cortex. So he was actually like kind of glued and blended around the eyes and mouth because he was the he articulated the most. So he was technically a makeup. But a lot of them are just very static. Aliens, like very much in the style of like the cantina scene and stuff. <laughs> They're just kind of like pull over Halloween masks, essentially. Uh, the one guy, uh, Star Striker mm. 77, as we've labeled him, his body from the neck down, if you take off his like orange chest piece and shoulder pads and stuff, like that's actually the Dark Powell suit from the void. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> look at his hands. I don't know if you can see it in the movie. There's some publicity stills that we did. Where you can see in the hands, he's got the like eyes that Dark Powell had (laughs) on his hands. So there's some like repurposing going on for sure. It was one of those things where I put in the script, like, oh yeah, there's like eight aliens sitting around a table. And then when it came time to make eight aliens, I was like, oh, why the hell do I have to make eight aliens? (laughs) This This is crazy. (laughs) This is too ambitious. So there's like the one guy we just named Alan who's like sitting to the back right, the guy with kind of a scowl on his face next to Cortex. Like, that alien, uh, my friend Andrew Cook sculpted him, and it was just a mask that he had. Like, he had the mold at, at our shop, and I was like, hey, can I, like, throw this in PG? Because I need more aliens for my thing. So it was a lot of repurposing and just, like, calling in favors to, like, fill out the roster of creatures. A lot of uh, just low-budget trickery to get us to that table full of creatures on a
0: budget. As somebody who's so... Passionate about the process of practical effects. How is it for you now, like where you are with having access to a creature shop coming from just creating all this stuff, like you said, in your parents' garage? It's funny
1: because it's just like the exact same thing where I'm still like making a lot of it myself and making it on the cheap. You know, like with PG, I was able to afford a certain level of help from people, but. Eventually that money dried up and I had to just like kind of do things on the cheap and use, I had an un- unpaid intern named Chloe who was like super helpful and did a ton of work on the movie. She was like fresh out of makeup school. And so this was like her first big project. And so she was there with me like every night casting masks and body parts and things out of molds for me and painting and finishing. And it was, uh, like a real scramble that basically just felt like how it's felt on any movie for me where it's like enough time. There's not enough money. There's not enough resources, but it still has to get done. You can't show up on set as the director and creature effects designer and producer and writer and go like, Oh, sorry, I don't have a PG. (laughs) My bad. I mean, it's, it's like the scale of things has gotten bigger, but the problems are all exactly the same.
3: This episode of the Hauntsville Cryptcast is brought to you by Reanimated Apparel. Check them out at letsreanimate.rip to pick up some spooky shirts, hoodies, undies, you name it. And save 10% by using our code Hauntsville at checkout. That's letsreanimate.rip or at letsreanimate on Instagram. Now back to the episode.
0: Anna, Doza, do you guys have anything?
3: I just wanted to ask, uh, we know that Biocop as a as a concept uh, the character has been around for you know over a decade now is there anybody else character wise that has bled through into other works or has uh, evolved into other characters cuz even in Heart of Carl the the mask that Carl wears is is similar to some of the villains that uh, are in Manborg for instance
1: Yes that's true I mean that's definitely my era of being obsessed with Hellraiser so. <laughs> Okay <laughs> like, chatterer design is something that I was very much obsessed with back in, like, 2007 and 2008. So having, like, exposed teeth was a big thing. That was my big cool thing at the time. But, yeah, I mean, there's I feel like there's design crossover in everything, just in terms of, like, the style of monster that I like making. I love making drippy, melty things. Yeah. That, that always seems to come up at some point, is having something where its skin is just kind of like pulling off of itself and it's all like webbed. It's definitely a thing that like the other people in the shop have started to notice in some of my sculpts on like making creatures for other shows. Like they'll specifically say like, it needs to have like that bullshitty webby thing that Steve does. Let's get him to sculpt. <laughs> it's, I've definitely developed a style of creature that i like to make i will say that on pg like especially with pg himself i like tried to challenge myself and sculpt a more normal looking creature that wasn't covered in bullshit webs so yeah there's definitely like elements and things that will always bleed into every kind of creature design that i do because i just uh i just have stuff that i like and one of those things is Hellraiser.
3: great much appreciated and just do me a favor and keep melting people because I, I don't know when this happened to me, but I'm a big fan of melt movies. And seeing some of your work, they look awesome. You, have, you do great melts.
1: I feel like on my end, I've perfected the melt, melt like the gelatin. <laughs> I did one in Heart of Carl. We did that one for Mandy, the Nick Cage face melt. In PG, I think the Pandora melt. It was actually the second attempt. The first one did not work. But the second time we did it. I was very happy because it wasn't just gelatin. It was actually like beeswax layered with gelatin. So it both melted at like different speeds to give kind of an interesting effect. But yeah, it's one of the effects that I love doing the most. I just think it's super fun. I don't know, it's just so satisfying because you shoot it, it takes like 20 minutes to melt this thing. As you're doing it, you're kind of thinking like, what am I even doing? Like (laughs) standing here with like a heat gun pointed at a thing while the camera's rolling, there's just like crap dripping everywhere. But then you drop that footage into premiere and you speed it up to like 5,000%. And then it's like, Oh cool. Like that actually looks like, like a thing. Yeah. I will try to integrate melts into
0: all my stuff. Can't wait. On that note, I guess who is your favorite creature that you've designed in any realm of your work?
1: I mean, I feel like that changes on a daily basis. I mean, I'm pretty proud of my sculpt of the head for, like, the fetus monster for The Void. I've actually got it, like, sitting on my <laughs> shelf right now.
3: Oh, my God. Oh, my God.
1: <laughs> I, I feel like I have to, like, give oh. a, a shout-out to her because wow. she's looking at me. So, yeah. And this was, like, like all the sculpts on this movie were done in haste, to be putting it lightly. So this was, like, maybe two days worth of work. But, oh, my God. Uh, Damon Bishop painted it, did a really fantastic paint job on him. He's, like, one of the best effects painters I've ever met. And, uh, yeah, he really brought it to life. And I think the black eyes really make it for me.
0: Very yeah. daunting.
1: Yeah, and, like, the suit was fabricated by uh, my effects buddy, Jay Deathridge. Like, it was all carved out of foam and then skinned with, like, foam latex sheets of skin texture. And, like, kind of built around a set of crutches to give it, like, the long, weird arms. So, yeah, it was a really interesting build. And Jay actually, like, played the creature as well, which is a very grueling experience for him. But yeah, I, I love how it looks in the movie, and I especially love when it's burnt at the end and it's chasing, uh, it's chasing the guy down the hallway. I think the burnt look is really unsettling and has... It, it like works in that love crafting kind of way. We bear, kind of barely see it. So it's like just enough that it's scary. So yeah, I'm really proud of that sequence, especially.
0: What's the main thing that you look for when casting somebody to play one of your creatures? Like, what do you look for at a creature actor over a regular actor?
1: Oh, I have a very specific set of criteria for my creature performers. Because I, I warn people right off the top that it's going to suck. And I worked on enough shows where they'll get like stunt guys to do it who are not prepared. And they like freak out in the makeups because they can't handle it. Like you're buried under an inch of latex, like all over your body or silicone or polyfoam or whatever the suit's made out of. It's very constrictive. If you're claustrophobic, like don't even attempt to be a creature actor. And it's all about endurance, like pacing yourself and knowing your body and knowing what you need till I get through the day, whether it's staying hydrated, eating little bits throughout the day. in some cases, not eating at all. I remember Mackenzie on father's day when he was in the, like the full demon creature at the end, like he didn't eat all day. I don't think he drank anything either. And it was like 13 hours and he just, just powered through it. I remember offering him a Coke at one point and he was like, is it regular Coke? And I was like, no, it's diet Coke. And he's like, well, I don't want it then. (laughs) So yeah, like, Like, he did a great job, I thought. And that was a really unforgiving suit. But then, yeah, I've been on shows where actors, like, I'll put the makeup on and then they just start freaking out immediately. Like, it's just too much for them. I don't think people realize, like, the mental stress that it puts on. And so, yeah, when I'm casting, I warn people, like, this is not going to be fun. This is going to be very unglamorous. You're going to be, like, hot and sweaty and tired. And you're, like, carrying an extra weight around all day. You have to act twice as hard because your face is pushing through prosthetics. So it's like dampening what you're doing. So, like, making a regular facial expression doesn't read because the makeup is kind of holding your face in place. So, like, you have to act twice as hard just to have anything register on the makeup. So, these are the kinds of things I explain to people. And people like Matt, who played PG, and Kristen, who played Pandora, they both took my warnings and like seem to take them to heart and really like put in the effort playing those characters. Like yeah, Matt had a really grueling experience because he was in that suit almost every day. But Kristen did too because she had those wings on. They weighed a ton. Her helmet, like there were no eye holes, so she was just blind the whole time. Eventually I made a like a stunt mask for her that had bigger eye slits for her to see out of. But like, I don't know, you're like blind and like in this constrictive suit and you have to like have a sword fight. That's asking a lot of an actor. So making sure that they know what they're getting into. Because I feel like in some cases, like, people will get cast in creature roles. And, like, the director or the casting agent or whatever will tell them, like, oh, it's going to be fun. It's, like, Halloween or whatever. And they don't realize that it's actually, like, the hardest thing to, like, be in a creature suit acting twice as hard as everyone else in the scene. And then also like not being able to hear or see or breathe or go to the bathroom in a lot of cases. So, yeah, it sucks. And I just tell people straight up that it sucks and that at the end of when you get to the end of that experience, it's great because you get to like create an iconic character, but you've got to go through hell to get there. So just letting people know, letting people know how shitty it is, is the most important part.
0: Props to Matt and Kristen, because they killed it in PG. I mean, that sword fight looks fantastic.
1: Well, and it's a sword fight with like pyrotechnics going off, like sparks and shit going off everywhere. Like, and this is also like at the end of an already very long day. Like we shot that fight after shooting the whole crazy ball scene. Like it's the whole climax we did in one day. And it was like a real sprint to get to that finish line. And so, yeah, it's like with the end of our day and it's like, all right, let's start this sword fight up. So they they were already in these suits all day and then had to do all this physical work on top of it. So it was really tough on them. But I thought they did a great job and it looks great uh, in the movie. I'm so happy with that part. It's like. One of my favorite parts and a bit of a wish fulfillment for me to be able to have two, like a monster and a robot lady having a sword fight with sparks going on. (laughs) I don't know if it gets any better in life than that, because it's pretty awesome.
0: What is it that you've got in store next that you're able to talk about? I'm developing a lot of stuff that I can't
1: talk about. I mean, my day job right now is just working in effects. Like when I'm not directing, I'm going down the street to old master's effects Toronto to work on whatever shows they're shooting in town right now. So I've been on the boys season three since January, as well as just on set doing some stuff for umbrella Academy season three. So yeah, working nine to five on creature effects stuff. And then at home writing and uh, noodling on some little stop motion things here and there and try- trying to write and then procrastinating with video games. Also what my night usually devolves into.
0: Like writing for video games or playing?
1: You no, know, like sitting down to write and looking at a blank page and maybe getting a sentence down and then being like, I should go download uh, the remake of Resident Evil from 2002 and play that again. And then I'll go do that for like six hours. That's usually what happens.
2: That sounds like every day for me. Minus all of the, the creature effects and stuff. That That sounds cool.
1: Yeah, I mean, nothing wrong with playing video games. There's some good stuff out there right now. I haven't touched the new Resident Evil yet. I was thinking of getting into it this weekend instead of writing. So, (laughs) uh, yeah, that might be my plan. Highly recommend.
0: Yeah, I had a lot of fun. (laughs) One last thing before we go into our Fear of the Day and recommendations. When we started this off, we got a really good idea of kind of what your film journey was from starting off to where you are now. And we got to talk a little bit about some of the festivals that you were in. We run a small independent horror film festival every year. We're going on our Fourth year now, I think, which is a branch of the Long Island International Film Expo, which is going on its 24th year. And we come across a lot of people in the industry and a lot of people who are on the indie circuit who there just seems to be this mindset of avoiding short films. And I couldn't disagree with that more. And you've got this prolific catalog of short films under your belt as well. What's some advice you might have for some filmmakers who are starting on their journey into the festival circuit and into just filmmaking as a whole?
1: My one piece of advice for filmmakers who want to make short films uh, to submit to festivals is keep it under 10 minutes because people's attention spans are short. And I don't get why people will send me shorts that are like 25 minutes long. Because it's like, where will this play? Where would you program that in a film program of short films? Like, it would feel weird to have five minutes, eight minutes, two minutes, 35 minutes. I don't know. I, I find some people, they seem to think that that's the road to take. And I'm like, no. Like, if you want this to essentially be a calling card to lead to bigger things, or like a way to just kind of like build your brand as a filmmaker, like, keep it short and sweet. And if you can't tell your short film story like in that timeline, then write a feature out of it and then go make that. But this weird in-between world of like it's not a short, it's not a feature, it's in this weird nebulous space where it's like feels too long for a short, but not substantial enough to be a feature length movie doesn't make any sense to me. So like if you want to break into the festival world and like get your movie out there and have it play a lot of festivals, keep it under 10 minutes. That is my... Number one advice that I give to everybody. And you'll, yeah, like your movie will have a better chance of getting into more festivals because it's, you know, keep it at a tight five. And yeah, it's easy to slot that into a program.
2: It makes our jobs a lot easier at the, at the five minute mark.
1: Well, yeah, I imagine having to screen those movies too. Like, I'm sure you don't like seeing the time code and it's like, yeah, over 20 minutes. That's an investment of time. And if it ends up being crap, like... <laughs> You're going to remember that filmmaker being like, oh, that's the guy that made that movie that was way too long that I had to sit through that wasn't good. You can handle a bad five-minute thing and still be like, well, I had interesting ideas. I want to see what this guy's going to do next. But it feels almost like you're trolling film programmers. That's really what
2: it feels like. Yeah, having just sat through 200 movies for the last festival, uh, yeah, I'm feeling that a lot at the moment.
1: (laughs) Yeah, totally. I've got a lot of film programmer friends who go through that, annually it's yeah a really grueling experience having to screen films like at least with feature films you get less but i think short films because there's just so many and it's like having to switch gears watching like i don't know like 50 different shorts in a day and if they're all long shorts then that just sounds like a nightmare to me i would never do that yeah (laughs) keep it tight yeah
0: awesome steve thank you so much for everything thank you so much for joining us here today Thank you for your advice. Thank you for creating these incredible films for us to go and sit and enjoy and have this cinematic experience with our friends. Like, this has been awesome, and it's so awesome to finally talk to you about everything that we've gotten to watch.
1: Oh, thanks, man. That was uh, great chatting with you guys, and thanks for letting me ramble uh, about my movies for this long. I appreciate it.
3: This was fantastic. Very enlightening. I, I feel great
0: right now. <laughs> now. Do you guys want your fear of the day? I would love it. Okay. Our fear of the day is teratophobia. Is uh, it the fear of slime? No, and I feel like you guessed that for every fear I give.
2: <laughs> I always want it to be the fear of slime. And we talk She's about gooey slime. movies a
1: lot. <laughs> is there is there actually a name for the fear of slime? That's what I want to know. I'm sure there is.
2: One day I'm going to get it right.
1: Yeah. So I
0: won't look it up. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's that's a weird one. There's no like easily associatable word with that. that I, I
0: will like, say um, this is a fear that could stem from the void.
1: Fear of the unknown?
0: No. All right,
3: terra, terra is a root word in there, right? And that's like a planet. Is it fear of being
1: underground? No. Ah. Is it a fear of like feeling insignificant in an infinite universe?
0: Not quite. Give it to us. Teratophobia is the fear of giving birth to a monster or a disfigured fetus. That's a thing. Oh. <sighs> After watching the void, I definitely have it. You're hey, not good with
2: body horror at all.
1: I mean, isn't that a fear we all have? Is there like is there a kink of like wanting to give birth to a monster? <laughs>
0: yeah, teratophilia.
1: yeah i guess it could just swing both ways with that
0: (laughs) on that awful note do you guys have a recommendation for our listeners to go home and check out for themselves i've been watching i watched the first season of sweet home on netflix
3: it's a korean horror program that is character driven but monster reliant and the a lot of the creatures are either uh sculpts or the ones that are sort of like 3d animated don't look as good but they have some very unique and very fun monsters in there it's a bunch of people trapped in an apartment complex and people are turning into monsters and they don't know why and everybody that turns into a monster turns into one that reflects the kind of person they were when they were human so it's uh, a wide array of fun and interesting monsters i
0: didn't realize it was a tv series when you're telling me about it that's awesome yeah oh because i watched it all in one day oh yeah
2: <laughs> my recommendation is it's an 80s film i've been doing a lot of 70s recently so i'm going back to my 80s from beyond by stuart gordon everyone knows him for making reanimator but i feel like from uh, beyond was like like, reanimates his little brother that just didn't get enu- enough recognition. <laughs> so, it's in 1986. It's also got Jeffrey Coombs in it, and it's another, like, Lovecraft love letter. So, it's based on the short story by the same title from Lovecraft, but it's also just got these really weird Stuart Gordon little quirks in it that I just adore. Um, and I'm recommending it because it reminds me of the Kostansky universe of just Lovecraft and body horror and just all all good things combined, so from beyond
1: Can I just point out that like Stuart Gordon is one of the best genre filmmakers ever, his filmography is amazing, and not just his horror stuff, but like I'm a huge fan of Robot Jocks and uh, Fortress is amazing.
2: Robot Jocks was nearly my recommendation. Oh. <laughs> and I was but, like, oh, it's going a bit too that way, but
1: yeah. Even like Pit and the Pendulum, that guy's filmography, like you actually map it all out and it's like, he doesn't really have a bad movie in there. He really brings his A-game with every project, no matter what it is, whether it's a full moon movie, like Empire or West, like that guy, I aspire to be as good as that guy someday. I think he's a, one of the best genre filmmakers ever.
2: Well, I mean, he, his stuff reminded me of you, which is why I wanted to to link it <laughs> to the episode. So I feel like it's the same attitude as to like why I love Stuart Gordon is because I feel like he does stuff because he wants to and not because. He's like, oh, this is going to make the most money for me, or this is going to, you know, beam on brand. He's just like, no, that sounds good. I want to do this. Or I've come up with this. I want to do that. Um, and I think that's the best thing that a filmmaker can do. So,
1: Yeah, I feel like he brings passion to every movie that he's made. He does not, he's not a jobber about it. He really brings it. You can tell, like, yeah, he's passionate about, like, literature and about Lovecraft. But even like sci-fi, he's like passionate about that stuff. Like, I feel like Space Truckers is a way better movie than it deserves to be. So, yeah, Stuart Gordon, he kicks ass. My recommendation is sort of topical, I guess, in that there was a Mortal Kombat movie that came out recently. And uh, I've been watching Mortal Kombat Conquest, the show from the late 90s, which I had never seen. But I'm amazed at how it is, like, such a... 90s tv version of the like first and second movie like it's so cheap in a hilariously charming way i love that it has daniel bernhardt from well i know him from bloodsport 4 dark kumite and it's got kristana Loken from terminator 3 yeah it's got all the fun kicky punchy of those movies but in like the goofiest TV way, I find it very comforting. It's my like comfort food right now. It is certainly washing down the taste that that recent movie left in my mouth. So, <laughs> Combat Conquest is my recommendation.
2: I think I've got that recorded off the TV from the 90s still somewhere on VHS. Oh, it, just, wow. it just reminded me.
1: That's the perfect way to watch that show, I think. It needs to look like it's dubbed off of TV.
2: I think it's on a VHS with Headbanger's Ball and Ren and Stimpy, <laughs>
1: <Weird>. <laughs> if I
2: remember correctly. So I'm going to have to find that.
0: Yeah, Steve, where are you watching that now?
1: Well, actually, a friend loaned it to me because I was trying to find it online and I couldn't find it anywhere. Uh, it's my friend Alex, who played Dark Scream in PG. He's big, well, I mean, he's a stunt guy, so he's big into martial arts and martial arts movies and shows, and he uh, he actually, like, ripped the DVDs for me in and sent me all the files to watch because I was complaining that I couldn't find it anywhere.
0: (laughs) All right, so for my recommendation, I'm going to recommend something that just came out real recently, Benny Loves You, which is on Voodoo right now. (laughs) Really? I had exactly as much fun as I thought I was going to go into Benny Loves You, which, as a puppeteer, is really rare for me. I refuse to believe that we peaked at Puppet Master and Dead Silence and benny loves you is like it's up there like i had fun benny's a great character great design said exactly what he needed to say without trying to be like too overtly ominous i definitely i thought it was a fun time
1: so what is the basic premise of that movie because i've seen i feel like on social media i've seen people post about it but i have no idea what it's about
0: uh so the general premise is that in this universe Toys who are neglected are kind of given a chance at sentience and in that sentience they try to create this like terrifying only me bond with their I guess kid or whoever owns them. So our main character is like going through his growing up phase and he decides to throw Benny out and it beat for beat follows like Alvin and the Chipmunks, Hop and like all those like kids movies like an E.T. kind of thing, like this supernatural figure comes into play to change my life for the better. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Hauntsville Cryptcast. I'm Anthony. I'm Doza. I'm Anna. And a huge thank you to our special guest today, Steve Kostansky.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It was great chatting with you guys.
0: Happy hauntings. And we'll see you, laser.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so sorry.